Father, our heart's desire this morning is to lift up our brother, Pastor Juan in Juarez, his cousin who has lost these four men, her sons, in this uh, violence that is taking place there in Lomas Blancas, uh, far, far east of Juarez, but uh, nonetheless a very lawless place. We ask, Lord God, for your strength and your wisdom, your encouragement, uh, that it would come to this family, Lord God, in this very uh, grievous time. We ask, Lord, for the very outpouring of your Holy Spirit, uh, that you would use uh, Juan to uh, minister to his family, to speak to them the words of, of hope and comfort, Lord God, in the midst of all of this hopelessness and and chaos that, uh, that exists, Lord, right now. We would ask, Lord God, and we, we find it oftentimes very hard to, to, to just know what words to use or to say, Lord, to uh, express our uh, health toward them. Your word tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep, and we are certainly brought to that point of needing to weep with those who are weeping today in this situation. And I just would ask, Lord God, you provide them for everything that they need uh, in Jesus Christ's name to comfort and to strengthen and to lift this family up once again, Lord, uh, in the midst of all of this uh, trial and, and tribulation. As we come now to your word, we ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon each and every one who is here today so that what we hear and what we see from your word, we can uh, begin to understand and, and, and not only in our minds and, and in our understanding, but Lord, to receive the wisdom to apply uh, the very truths that we hear today to our lives, to our homes, to our families. We ask you, Lord, to strengthen our families, our marriages, especially in this church. For we, indeed, Lord, we, we come to the standard of that marriage today. And we pray, Father, for that wisdom and grace to uh, be lights as far as families are concerned here in the church. We ask these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. Amen and amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. And that is our text this morning. And so, on the basis of our study of verse 18 last time, we will just springboard right into the rest of this chapter today. And the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him unhelp, meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. 
And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. A young minister was performing his first wedding ceremony and fearing that he might forget something. He sought counsel from an older preacher. The experienced man told the young minister everything he needed to do and made one final suggestion. He said, if you ever forget what you are supposed to say, just quote scripture. And so the ceremony went smoothly that this young minister was performing. It went smoothly until he pronounced the happy couple husband and wife. And at that point, his mind went blank. And that's when he remembered the advice of the old preacher to quote scripture. So he quoted the only verse that came to his mind. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, marriage is is certainly a challenge, isn't it? Marriage is a challenge in the best of circumstances, but it can also be a tremendous blessing. It's sad to have to admit that in a society like ours today, healthy marriages are the exception and not the rule. But if we can build marriages with, with a biblical foundation that move against the prevailing current, the widespread tide as we see them, we, we will have a strong and a wonderful basis from which to proclaim the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ with family, friends, neighbors, as well as with the rest of the world through that union that God puts together between a husband and a wife. It's no secret that uh, the institution of marriage is under attack in a greater way today than it has ever been. And sadly, a great number of young people doubt that a lifelong marriage is even possible. They've seen so much divorce that it seems normal to them. But think about everything that is happening in society today, especially in the issue of relationships and in the issue of sexual orientations and sexual and gender uh, issues and, and, uh, and whatnot. And you realize that the more uh, people start talking about uh, uh, the need to accept and to tolerate, that in, in, that, that mindset is, is, is the same even in those issues, that there's so much of it that it seems normal. 
But getting back to the issue of marriage and divorce, for many of us, divorce has affected us directly as well as indirectly, causing a whole lot of pain and creating awkward situations along the way, splitting uh, families, especially children, and drawing demarcation lines, as it were, between all involved. In a word, vows broken, vows and li- vows broken, lives broken. May I say to you, though, that God's way is still the best way? God's way is still the best way. We've always been encouraged, you know, when buying a new car, to read the owner's manual. Because in it you'll find a whole lot of great information to keep your new car in great running condition on the road, as well as looking great in the eyes of the general public. We read there what kind of oils to put in, what kind of things to do, the times of maintenance and the times that everything needs to happen so that car continues to run in such a, in such a wonderful way. And then, of course, you just want to make it look really nice all the time. Well, in a similar fashion, but in an even greater sense, in a more serious sense, we've been given God's owner's manual, that Bible that's sitting on your lap or that you have in your hands. God has given us his owner's manual for our lives individually as well as for our marriages and our relationships as well. And perhaps if we were more attentive to the designer's instructions, we would find that marriages will work much better. You know, traditional wedding ceremonies declare that marriage is an honorable estate. It is honorable because God created marriage and gave it as a gift to mankind. Marriage is to be holy because God is holy and marriage comes from Him. It is far more than just a legal act made possible because two people bought a marriage license. It's a lot more than that. And I kind of alluded to this last time, but uh, you know, not everybody may be called to marriage, but yet we are all called to holiness. Amen? Okay, so, but dealing with the issue of marriage, it is much more than just saying this is what we have because this is what this piece of paper says. So let's remember two key principles then that we have learned in our past couple of studies here in the book of Genesis. The first principle is a long one, so bear with me, but I think you'll remember this principle. The first principle is, our God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is extremely wise and rational and would never do, say, or act on anything or create, make, or form anything capriciously, which means to say that he'll never do anything randomly or erratically or changeably or impulsively or suddenly or even on a whim. He never does anything by accident or by trial and error because he is sovereign and he is providential in all that he does. And so everything that God does is good. That's the first principle to understand. It's a long one, but it's a good one. The second principle is this, that in the beginning, God established the standard of marriage in a sovereign, providential, rational, reasonable, and loving way. 
as his word declared back in Genesis 1 verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image created, image of God created he him. Male and female created he, male and female created he them. There's the standard of marriage. That doesn't change. Now we spend much of our last study focusing our attention upon the one thing that was not good in the perfect garden God had created for man, that paradise of Eden. And that thing that was not good was that the man he placed in the garden was alone. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> in a world that is still without sin, that, that world there, that world that was still without sin, a world of created perfection with not even a hint of moral contamination, God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a help, meet for him. I'll make him a help that is fit for him, that is suitable for him. And as I said last time, Adam was standing by himself. And so what did we learn? Standing alone, man is incomplete, he is unfinished, he is unfulfilled, he is deficient, and he's lonely. And so man was only half of God's plan for human life. Man was only half of God's plan. And yet what we learn today is that what was within him, that the other half, in, in essence, was in him already. But we'll get to that in just a moment. God said that he would create a help, meet for man. Other translations translate that little phrase this way. A helper comparable, a helper suitable, a helper fit, a helper who is like him, and a companion who will help him. We get this picture from those particular words used. A helper. And we get a picture in our minds. Because the word helper might be seen by some men and even some women to mean that a person who is a helper would be the one who sweeps the floor and who makes the beds and who prepares the meals and so on. And I suppose while the husband is sitting in his comfortable recliner with two remotes in his hand. So if we say helper, well, you know, we might think of that or we might even think of hamburger helper. You know, it's always something, something else, you see. But God says something much different with those words. A help meet for him. Because the phrase help meet in the proper context means this. The word help there by itself just means one who supplies what is lacking in another person. One who supplies what is lacking in another person. God would create Eve to do what Adam could not do by himself. And it makes for interesting math. Because I want to make a statement to you today that truly does apply to this issue. The statement is, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Or the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So it isn't here... One plus one equals two. 
It could be more like saying one plus one equals a hundred. Now I know you think that I'm off my rocker in math. But there's a point that I want to make here. I want you to consider and I want you to turn to Psalm 46 verse 1. Because in Psalm 46 verse 1, this is where that word help is used for God himself. And then I want you to to think as we go through this, how that help grows exponentially when the two are brought together as one. But let's look at verse uh, 1 of uh, Psalm 46. And we're actually going to read a few verses here because I think it strengthens this idea. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is our very present help in trouble. When we find ourselves in that trouble, guess where the help comes from? God himself. For those who, who need counsel and they come for counsel, listen, we'd be, we'd be off our rockers if we think we have the wisdom. It is God that we'll point you to. Why? Because he's the very present help in, uh, in times of need. He's your very present help in trouble. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. And then he says, therefore, we will not fear. I can say this, that in many marriages today, there's too much fear. People within the marriage might fear each other. They fear their problems. They fear their circumstances. They fear what might happen if one does this or another does that. Too much fear. But David says, therefore, we will, therefore will not we fear though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. No matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we see in the midst of these situations. Though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. And then there's a pause. And then comes this wisdom from God. There is a river. The streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. God shall help her, and that right early, right away. That is the kind of help we get from God. So isn't he greater than the sum of all parts? Just one God, and he's greater than the sum of all the parts. So when God puts together a man and a woman in marriage and the two become one, the blending together of gifts and talents and love and and honesty and everything else that, that is involved in all of this, the potential of the strength of that marriage is great as long as God is in it. So now, when it says God shall help her and that right early, I, I just, it, it makes me think of how God answers us if we'll trust him and if we turn to him. And I've always thought of, of Peter 
uh, when, when Jesus had walked on the water and the storm began to uh, stir up and, and, and the apostles were in a boat all scared and all. And, but, but he calls out to the apostles or the disciples at the time. And, and the only one who gets out of the boat is Peter. And Peter starts walking to Jesus and he's walking above the storm and, and he's walking on the water toward Jesus. And as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, everything was cool, everything was fine. But as soon as he began to notice the storm and the, and the waves and everything, he, he began to sink. And immediately he cried out to, to Jesus, help! And immediately Jesus pulled him out. And they walked back to the boat together. But you see, that is the response that Jesus always promises. That is the response that God always promises. When he is our help, when we allow him to be that help, he will answer right early and right away. So isn't he greater than the sum of all parts? God is. So marriage then, in in context to all of these thoughts, marriage is meant to be a shared companionship between a husband and a wife. Sharing life side by side, hand in hand, sharing everything together in honesty, openness, holiness, and love. But all this does indeed fall within the standard that the Lord set in creation of man. And then, of course, when woman comes along. But, be, but before we, ta- we take the time to look at that and before that takes place, what happens? Adam actually is given a task. Adam is given a task. Genesis 2, verse 19. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Stop there for just a moment and remember that, of course, uh, the animals were created in, 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 in actually the fifth and the sixth day before man was created. So they were already made. They were already on the earth. And all of this is just reminding us of that. So this is not a recreation or this is not actually uh, the Lord creating more uh, animals uh, in that particular way. It's just reminding us that the animals already existed. And then it says, And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. That was the task. He brought these animals unto Adam. To see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Now some of you may think this sounds weird. But in this passage, God is preparing Adam for marriage. Weird, huh? Nobody's all looking at me like I am weird. Okay, well, then my my goal was accomplished. It might sound weird, but Adam giving names to all the animals was God's way of preparing him for marriage. Why? Well, first of all, God is training Adam to be a leader. God is training Adam to be a leader. By giving Adam the power to name was giving him the power of authority. And you know, God hasn't really stopped doing that. 
Because Scripture does tell us that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, can speak the name of Christ with authority. But in Adam's particular situation here, he has been given that power of authority to name the animals. He was training him to exercise his dominion as given to him by God over all the other created beings. As we've seen in chapter 1 and alluded to in chapter 2. And when Eve, they would become then the stewards over all creation, answerable only to the God of creation. So the naming of the animals was in fact a preparation, a training to be a leader. And because he was the first that was created, he would then be the leader of his home, the leader of his family. But then secondly, God was training Adam to be a lover. But there's no weirdness here either. (laughs) Think about it in these terms. He brings all the animals to Adam. If this is still, in fact, the sixth day. Or not too many days after the sixth day. It doesn't necessarily mean that Adam has seen everything in the garden. God has to bring the animals to him. And as he begins to see the wonders of God's creation, Adam, who we find out in this particular section and passage, has an intellect, has wisdom, has a a, a tremendous capacity that God created him with that he would then begin to see the things that that God had created and began to say my that's beautiful my what beauty God has given in these animals it's a lot better than just looking at these plants the plants look nice but they don't do anything but these animals they make noise Ah, ah, you know whatever And their colors, I'm sure, just fascinated Adam. So there was, in that sense, respecting the beauty that God created. You know, we can still do that today. And and we'll talk about that more as we head toward Noah's Ark and and, and the flood and the the animals. We're going to come back in scientific ways that we... We're doing it first, so we're going to really deal with a lot of these issues later. But the point is that, that he began to see the beauty of creation, and we can still see the beauty of God's creation. So then consider another thing, that, that Adam was surveying all the animals that he had just named, but he began to observe something else. What did he observe? Well, he names... The, the elephant, but then he realizes, well, there's a Mr. Elephant, but there's also a Mrs. Elephant. And there wasn't just a Mr. Owl, there was a Mrs. Owl. There wasn't just a Mr. Giraffe, there was a Mrs. Giraffe. And so it went throughout all of the animal kingdom that day. There was always a male and a female. Now the pairings, actually, you know, this is not something that we just are adding to this. 
we'll see that it's an implied understanding. But if Adam had the capability to intelligently name all the animals, it shows, first of all, that he was a brilliant man. And since at this time Adam's intellect had not yet suffered from the fall, he was probably the most brilliant man who ever lived. We could even say that Adam was the first and the greatest of all biologists and botanists that ever lived. Because he was the first. And he had everything that God had given him the knowledge about. And even to the extent that he gave him the power to name the animals. And it isn't, and I should say, it, it's interesting that Adam did not name any other animal after himself, calling any other animal some kind of man or human or even near human or like human, never does that and never applies that to the names of the animals. They're all different. They're all distinct. So we understand and we see that he understood that he was essentially different from all the animals. He was making very clear distinctions to the animals and to himself. In other words, they were not made in the image of God as he was. And as for Adam being trained to be a lover, there there is an obvious implication here. Because the animals did come in pairs and he didn't have a mate like all of them did was God creating in him a growing hunger for a life partner a hunger that God would soon meet in the creation of Eve well let's consider this thought that the Lord never awakens a desire that he cannot and will not satisfy in his own good time and way God never awakens a desire in anyone, and in particular his own creation, in a perfect environment. Never awakening a desire that he cannot and will not satisfy in his own good time, and his own good way. Bring all of that thought up to today, and guess what the problem is? Our problem today. Our problem is that we are so impatient and we are so impulsive. We already know that God is not impatient and he is not impulsive. But we are. And we can be. And we have the potential to be a whole lot impatient and a whole lot impulsive. Then I want you to add to that something in our day and time, in our society, in our culture today. Add to the problem of impatience and impulsiveness... That we live in a sex-inflamed world where passions and desires are aroused and fanned into raging flames long before their time. And I speak about our youth. Society today, and I, I hate to say that even some parents of their children are encouraging their children and encouraging young people to grow up way before they should. I, I hated seeing just the other day on, on, on the news, they were showing a video of, I think they were just elementary school kids, that uh, girls that were dressed in a very provocative thing. I mean, you know, as young as they were, but what was it doing? It was putting in them 
this idea that this is cool, that this is good, this is great. Skimpy outfits. I believe it was in a public school. We're telling kids, grow up. We are called to guard them in their youth, to allow them to grow step by step, their emotions and their physical aspects and attributes, let them grow together. Unfortunately, we haven't done much in that realm as, as a society. It's just gotten worse and worse. You know, these are just some of the problems that young people face today. And it's important that we come back to understand the purity that God had originally intended for man in the garden, which was to be the standard for the rest of all of creation. Let's heed Paul's words in regards to that purity in Philippians 4, verses 8 and 9. For those of you who may have been here on Wednesday night, I believe I, I quoted from this too. So it's a lesson we probably need to hear more often. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, do. And the God of peace shall be with you. Do you know that we, we have lost the peace of God in many lives today because we've taken our eyes off of honesty and justice and purity and loveliness and, 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 and good report. The very virtues that God says we are to focus upon in this life. And I want you to have God's peace. So thinking on the things that make for peace, the things of God, from the very beginning, the standard, the purity, the holiness, the godliness. That's, you know, I mentioned earlier the fact that we can be a witness whether as individuals, as singles, or as couples, married, we can be a witness to the world of the love of Christ, staying in tune with the things that are of good report. So as we continue on, we come now to the first surgery in the Scriptures. I guess you can say that at this point, the Garden of Eden became a hospital. And the Lord God, verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Brings to mind a little story. At Sunday school, 
They were teaching how God created everything, including human beings. Little Tommy, a child in the kindergarten class, seemed especially interested when they told him how Eve was created out of one of Adam's ribs. Later in the week, his mother noticed him lying down as though he were ill, and she asked him, Tommy, what's the matter? And little Tommy responded, I have a pain in my side. I think I'm going to have a wife. (laughs) Oh, little Tommy. (laughs) He learned the lesson good, didn't he? Well, on a more serious note, Matthew Henry, a great English commentator, has written that the woman was taken from Adam's side, not from his head to rule over him, not from his feet to be trampled on, but from his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected, from close to his heart to be loved. What a simple but profound phrase. Something that we don't see here in Adam, that we might see in our culture and society and time today. We don't see Adam running frantically all over the Garden of Eden looking for a soulmate, much less a help meet. It didn't get into his mind after God had brought the animals to him and he named them and saw the pairings and all and said, you know, God, I'll be right back. I'm going to look for one for me. Doesn't do that. Doesn't do that at all. Also, we don't see him sulking under some tree because his desire for a wife was not instantly gratified. Come on, Lord, where's mine? Where's mine? Where's mine? Or sulking, who everybody, all the other animals, you know. We don't see this happening. What God does then, He takes Adam and He puts him into this deep, deep, deep sleep. And by the way, if you if you study the Hebrew, where it talks about a deep, deep sleep, it's a sleep that is so deep that it's so deep that it's it's almost like death, except not being dead. And what we learn from this passage is that Adam went to sleep in the will of God. Think about this thought for a moment. Adam went to sleep in the will of God, leaving matters in God's hands, and God marvelously works. And it brings to mind the very thought that we need to live our lives, whether awake or asleep, in the will of God, trusting Him, having confidence in Him to do those things that are necessary for us, to have them done unto us, done through us and for us, as well as toward us. And there's something precious about being able to sleep in the will of God. David tells us early on in the psalm, Psalm 4, verses 6 through 8, he makes this tremendous statement that, that I want you to hear very clearly. There be many that say, who will show us any good? 
Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Consider the, con- you know, the, the, the confidence that David had in the midst of the trials that he always faced or, the, or in the midst of the struggles that he, that he might have faced with enemies or, or even people that weren't his enemies. And yet he could go to rest, he could lay himself down in peace, and he could sleep because the Lord was the one who made him dwell in safety. And that applies to us. If we belong to Jesus Christ, we should be able at night to surrender everything to him, to pray, Lord God, as I sleep, what do I have to worry about tonight? I want to lay down in peace and I want to rest and sleep and know that you're the one that makes me lie in safety. You know, we've all grown up with some kind of sense of a little bit of a fear of the dark, a fear of night, you know, a fear, you know, that something's creepy crawling around. Especially when we're young and growing up. And those of you of my generation or a little before maybe, you remember, you know, having to watch, you know, Frankenstein movies and Dracula movies, all that were in black and white anyway, and we... But, but besides, we didn't have color TVs, so that made it even scarier. And, and, and you know, they were always, you know, there was always this kind of, and, and you watch them on a Friday night or a Saturday night, and, and, and a lot of times if your parents weren't home and you were watching these movies, and you were just scared out of your mind, and you were watching TV in the back room, but your room was in the front, what did you do? You turned on every light to get to the front, then you ran all the way to the back of the house and then one by one you turned off, off the lights and maybe left one or two on until you got back to your bed. Or you feared to take the trash out into the alley. We, many houses don't have alleyways. We used to have an alley and I had to take the trash out there. Man, it was so fast that we just throw it and run back inside the house. A lot of times I had to go back out in the morning to clean up the mess because I just kind of threw everything. Those shadows were dark. Sleeping with one eye open. How many of you do, have done that? You don't have to raise your hands. We've probably all done that. God says, I, you don't have to fear. He's the one who makes us dwell in safety. Resting in the knowledge of God's care for you. Proverbs three twenty one through 26 says, My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Solomon, speaking to his son, says, Let them not depart from thine eyes. What is that? Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Sound wisdom and discretion, don't let them depart from your eyes. So shall they be life unto thy soul and grace to thy neck. Then shalt thou walk in, the w- in thy way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thou sleep. Thy sleep shall be sweet. Be not afraid of sudden fear, neither of the desolation of the wicked when it comes. For the Lord shall be thy confidence and shall keep thy foot from being taken. Isn't that wonderful comfort to know? That the God who created us and the God who provides for us and the God who has put us together in, in, in all of our homes and families is the one that will keep us safe in the midst of all of the struggles that we may face. So that's just a reminder then, when, when God puts him into a deep sleep, he put all his trust in God. He slept in the will of God. 
He left matters in God's hands. And we ought to do the same. Tonight, you know, you might be worried about something that you know is going to happen tomorrow. But there's nothing you can do between now and tomorrow. Except to trust the Lord. To pray, to say, Lord God, give me the strength to deal with whatever I have to face tomorrow. But Jesus said, be anxious for nothing now. And trust Him in your life. So you trust Him that way in your life, in your homes, in your families. But trust Him. And so getting back to the garden and, and, and the surgery that took place. Now Eve was formed while Adam slept. Which means that he had nothing to do with her creation other than supplying the raw materials. And I'm sure that the Lord didn't ask Adam for his input or, or even ask him to place his order. Adam, what is it that you would like in a woman? What, what is it that you'd like in a help me? You let me know. Here, I'll take your order. You know. He didn't have to do that. And he didn't do it. He just put him to sleep. He said, in a little bit, you'll have your help me. And Adam will realize it came from his side. So in other words, God didn't need help in designing a helpmeet for Adam. God didn't need help. God never needs our help. That's why we are to pray. That's why we are to trust. That's why we are to have confidence in the Lord. And so woman came out of man's need and out of his own being. She was to be the object of man's cleaving. By the way, the word cleaving here comes from the word cleave. And, and that's an interesting word because it actually has two meanings and the meanings are opposite. To cleave can mean to separate, like take a cleaver and chop something and you separate something in half. You create a, what is called a cleavage then. You create something that is separate. But the word cleave also means, has a secondary meaning, but it's the opposite. It means to cling. To cling so tightly and so close that it cannot be separated. What an interesting word that is, and it's used here in the scriptures. But it's used in the context of clinging. She was to be the object of man's clinging or cleaving. Therefore, she was made out of man's being in order to cause a natural clinging, a reaching out for, another, for one another's own being, one another's own flesh. The two shall become one. She was to be one flesh with man. Therefore, she was made out of the very flesh of man so that man and woman would have identical natures and stand as counterpart to one another, fulfilling each other. Completing each other. Woman came out of man's flesh so that both would cherish and nurture the other. Because no person hates his own flesh. That comes uh, as well from what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. I would encourage you to read Ephesians 5 today as your homework. All of it. But just turn to verse 28 for now and verse 29. Because there Paul says, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it even as the Lord the church. And now there's one other thing that I want to add to this creation of woman. And that is that woman is the glory and the crown of creation. 
I bet you didn't know that. Well, you should know it because it's scriptural. Woman is the glory and the crown of creation. The being who brings more refinement to the world than any other creature. Husbands, you should say amen. We are the most unrefined people on this, on this earth. And if God does not give us the people that he gives us to refine us, we're in trouble. So consider that. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 7. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But then it says, but the woman is the glory of the man. The woman is the glory of the man. And folks, what did we say about man being created? He was the pinnacle of creation. And Paul says, the woman is the glory of the pinnacle. And that's why Peter, and we'll talk about this later, but Peter uh, mentions how husbands are to love their wives and to consider them in the way that he says to, you know, to honor them as the weaker vessel. Weaker doesn't mean uh, without strength, but it does imply the glory that God had given for man to appreciate. It's interesting that after the creation of the animals, so listen to the, the order here. Uh, after the creation of the animals, man was created out of the dust of the ground. He who was created after was more excellent and of more glory than the animals, right? Man was certainly more glorious than the animals that were created. But woman was made after man, and she was not taken out of the dust of the ground, but out of man himself. And to a certain extent, woman then was twice removed from the earth. She caused us to glory her more. Twice removed. Once in Adam, when he was created out of the dust of the ground, she was there. Adam probably didn't know that. And then the second time, when she comes out of Adam. So here she is, a person who is to be honored in that sense. The glory and the crown of creation. And then in verse 22, we're told that the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man. And by the way, when, when you go to a barbecue place and you ask for ribs, do you know they don't just bring you bone? Because then you'd be really upset. When God took the rib from Adam's side, certainly he took bone. But there had to have been flesh. Why? Because of what he'll say later. She's now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Brought her unto the man. Does that remind you of anything? Is there a picture that comes to mind? When it says that God brought woman to man, the father of the bride, as it were, personally brought the woman to Adam. We see this when we have weddings here. A woman is going to marry a, 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 her bridegroom. 
stands in the back. And who's usually back there with them? A very nervous father, especially if it's his first daughter to give away. And he shakes and rattles and rolls. Well, his knees do anyway. And it's hard for, her, uh, for him to let go of her. But eventually when the music starts, he escorts her in. She looking as beautiful as ever. He looking as stiff as ever. But when they get down here to the front and the bridegroom is ready to receive his bride, the exchange is made. Beautiful picture that comes right out of the first wedding ever performed by God. Can you all hear me over that rattle? Okay. I've been talking pretty loud, you know, but sometimes I kind of back off. I want to make sure you hear me. And then we have here some more firsts that take place in the book of Genesis. Here, this is the first boy meets girl story in history. Boy meets girl. And then there is the first marriage procession, which I just talked about. Followed by the first wedding ceremony with some not so traditional wedding vows, by the way. Let's look at verse 23. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, that verse is more than likely Adam's wedding vow. Verse 24 says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Verse 24 and 25, these verses are commentary. Probably Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To explain the standard that has been set. But Adam does say, with language, with intellect, and with understanding, this is now bone of my bones. By the way, verse 23 uh, contains a very poetic statement in Hebrew that is altogether lost in our modern translations. It is the phrase, this is now. This is now bone of my bones. This is now actually can be stated this way. This is it. And that way, with that, that, that emotion, oh, this is it. Where have you been all my life? His life, by the way, was only about a day. But he says, this is it. This is it. You know, it makes me kind of wonder whether Adam was still on the ground coming out of his anesthesia when God finally, hey Adam, here's Eve. Yeah, lying down. This is it. Get me up, Lord. <laughs> but Adam understood the essential oneness in his relationship with Eve. This point is so important that it is referred to several times in the New Testament, including the great marriage passage 
that we read earlier from the book of Ephesians. The two shall become one flesh. Now listen once again to the marriage vow stated by Adam himself with added commentary by the Holy Spirit. Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And now we have the names made clear for us. Adam, of the ground, man, Eve, out of man, woman. So we can now use their names as we know them. And therefore uh, shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. Adam's marriage vow was, was, was followed then by a proclamation of marriage virtue. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Now, understand here as we prepare to close today that the idea of nakedness deals far more than with mere nudity. It has the sense of being totally open and exposed as a person before God and man. To be naked and unashamed or not ashamed means you have no sin, nothing to be rightly ashamed of, nothing to hide. Man and woman were created perfect, innocent, and without shame. This verse is laying the groundwork for what is to follow in the next passage in chapter 3. What do we know about it? It is the fall of man. This is setting that foundation for chapter 3. But I want you to note again, and you're going to hear me repeat something over and over, but why is the repetition necessary so that we don't miss the point? Note that man and woman were naked, yet they were not embarrassed or ashamed. Why? Because they had nothing about which to be ashamed. They were perfect beings, completely innocent. They had done nothing wrong. They sensed no guilt or shame whatsoever. They belonged to one another. Their bodies belonged to the other, and together they belonged to God. They stood before God and before each other in perfection, perfectly innocent and free from any sense of shame, guilt, wrong, or failure. They were perfect beings in a perfect world, being everything they should be to each other and to God. There was no sin, guilt, or shame, nothing whatsoever to hide neither from each other nor from God. Did we catch the point? The point is, the standard was established and even though we don't live in a perfect world, we live in a fallen world, the standard hasn't changed. What do we need then to live according to God's standard? We need God himself. And we need to be serious about what he tells us to be so that we can live in that standard properly. Matthew 5, verse 8, Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Purity of heart. We, we spoke of that early on. Secondly, Philippians 2, 15. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. We are to go in the opposite direction that the world is going. We are to be light while living amongst darkness and we are to do so blamelessly and harmlessly 
blamelessly and harmlessly. In other words, living godly lives. Thirdly, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 12 and 13. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. Notice this, verse 13. To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. In an imperfect world, we are still called to holiness. We are still called to godliness in all of our relationships, in all of our dealings, in all of our ways. The standard has been set. And though it was set in a perfect world, the standard is to be here now because the perfection is going to come through the work of Jesus Christ. What he has done for you and for me, for all of us, he has set us free to live in the perfection of Christ, to live in the righteousness of Christ, and to glorify the Lord in our lives, in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, in our relationships. Let's go back into another Sunday school class before we close today where another little boy sat and he learned about the time that Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into wine. And his father asked him about the study that he heard and he asked him, what did you learn from that story? And the boy thought for a moment and he answered, if you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. If you're having a wedding, make sure Jesus is there. You know, that's great advice, isn't it? Make sure Jesus is there, right at the center of your marriage, of your home, and of your family. Shall we pray?